Welcome to Myanmar in a Potshell, the podcast that puts current developments in Myanmar into context. My name is Rodion Ebekhausen, and the title of this episode is Environment and Climate Change, the Looming Crisis Behind the Political Crisis. I would like to discuss this topic with Noor Anna Maria, who is a researcher of ecological economics and political ecology, studying environmental justice cases worldwide, uh, particularly in Japan and Myanmar. Her research focuses on environmental and climate justice activism and its implications in alternative pathways uh, to sustainability. And our second guest is Marianne Mosberg. She is a PhD candidate at the Department of International Environment and Development Studies at the Norwegian University of Life Sciences. Her PhD research focuses on the politics of climate change and the conflict dynamics in southeastern Myanmar prior to the 2021 military coup. Before starting her current PhD project, Marianne worked as a climate change and disaster risk reduction advisor for a UN agency in Yangon. Thank you very much for joining us today, and let's start with the discussion. Maybe we can say in view of the ongoing political crisis in Myanmar, environmental issues and the climate crisis have been pushed to the margin of attention. But Myanmar, however, is one of the world's most climate vulnerable countries facing cyclones, droughts, just to name a few things. So therefore, environment issues will have a massive impact on the country, its people and also its politics in the coming years. So that is why we are talking about this uh, topic today. And as you know, um, at the moment, the 2022 United Nations Climate Change Conference is taking place in Egypt. And very recently, I'm sure you have seen it, a question was raised by activists on social media to not invite representatives of the State Administrative Council to the COP27. Do you know if someone from Myanmar is taking part uh, in the conference, and maybe it can also be NGO workers or people you know, do you know if somebody is there representing uh, yeah, on behalf of Myanmar? And maybe, Anna Maria, you can start? Uh, thank you for um, having this podcast on environment. I think it is very uh, important and uh, having a space for us to discuss about environment in Myanmar. Um, I think there is no thing, uh, no country in the world that is uh, irrelevant to be engaging in the dialogue of climate change and environmental problems. Um, I am not uh, um, aware of any any organizations that is. Um, that is engaging or are actively participating in the COP27 at this moment. Uh, but uh, and to discuss about this, uh, this uh, climate crisis in, in, in Myanmar, um, it is very relevant for, for Myanmar you know, because um, it's, it's not just recently, but uh, it has always been that this global interest in, on ethnic identities and the, club, uh, the armed conflicts has always been overshadowing uh, the study of environmental uh, crisis in Myanmar. Like in a situation where in Myanmar, most of our rural populations, not the population, majority of the population resides in the countryside and they relied on, on natural resources, the land, rivers and forests. And these people suffer from, from all sorts of degradation of environment uh, by the uh, expansions of uh, extractive development projects. And on the other hand, like uh, as you mentioned, uh, we have... Um, um, 
adverse effect of climate change um, on, on like uh, change in temperature, rainfalls and, and declines in the biodiversities. And it will like, it, ha it has been affecting and, and in future it will have effects on livelihood, food security, and as well as, as, well as physical and mental well-beings. And maybe uh, Marian uh, will have uh, more um, insights about climate change, and and I, I will more talk more about this environmental and environmentalism in in Myanmar. Sure, thank you, Anna Maria, um, and thank you so much for inviting me to join this podcast. Um, so to start with your question about the COP27, um, actually I looked at the participant list of the of, of the COP just before we met now because I was also curious about the the final uh, list of participants and. Uh, um, so what I could see is that there were no official representatives from the um, the Myanmar state. Um, there is not going to be any um, statements from Myanmar as a as a country. So there is no official representation, but there were three people on the list that were from uh, Myanmar NGOs, uh, including WWF uh, and two other organizations. Uh, I also heard from a friend that he met some indigenous um, people from Chin State uh, who were participating in the COP uh, to represent uh, the voices of indigenous peoples. And I'm now going to ask a kind of a provocative uh, question. Would you say that the climate crisis is even more important or more threatening than the political crisis and that it wouldn't maybe even matter uh, who is going to the, to the climate conference, but that someone needs to be there to represent Myanmar? And maybe, Marianne, you can say something about this. Sure. Well, I think it depends on what kind of time scale we're thinking. If we're thinking in the long run, then yes, I agree that uh, that the world needs to to make very tough um, choices in terms of uh, our development pathways and and our emissions. And uh, to some extent, we don't really have time for this time of this type of politics. Um, that um, we need to ignore conflicts. We need to ignore other things to reach the the global goal of um, of reducing uh, global warming to 1.5 degrees. But I think um, the political crisis uh, and the conflicts in Myanmar are happening right now to such a large extent that, of course, um, for people's lives and livelihoods right now, it might be that conflict and the political crisis is more important. Um, so I think it depends a little bit on, on time scale here. Um, and, um, I think also it depends a little bit on if we're thinking about, um, social justice or, um, kind of the planetary health and, um, um the well-being of, of, um, mother nature. So if we're looking at societies, uh, people or, or the planet as, uh, as the most important thing here. So it depends a lot about values and norms, I would say, uh, how you would answer that question. I don't think there's a right or wrong answer to it. From your experience in the past working in Myanmar on environmental and climate change issues, how high ranked this problem or this topic or these issues, how high ranked these in the perception of the people and the perception of the politicians in the country? And maybe Anna Maria, you can start, and Marianne, you can add something. Okay. Um, 
Yes, I think before we go like pretty much deeper into the discussions, that uh, there are some things that I want to clarify or, or I want to emphasize some things. Like, uh, for instance, really when I talk about environmentalism in Myanmar, I know a lot of people will have a certain point of disagreement or uh, people confused um, uh, because the kind of the projection of post-materialist countries that already the countries that have already developed. Or, uh, or have this um, uh, industrialized uh, countries uh, values or uh, environmental claims like uh, reducing consumptions or uh, less use of plastics, veganism, for instance, uh, some things that sounds very much are like um, irrelevant or or that hasn't been like kind of. Um, integrated into the the perceptions and the values of Myanmar people yet uh, so so going back to this environmentalism uh, this is uh, there is this already it's not just about Myanmar it's not uh, it's a kind of long-standing idea that like poor people or poor nations do not care about environment or environmental protection these studies in the past are also based on the experiences of uh, of already developed countries, and so these um, problems of waste and pollutions. Uh, these are the problems that Myanmar people have hasn't experienced. So, um, the, they can have, but but in in a sense that uh, they can have different kind of um, uh, values in their culture um, and like stands in the end uh, kind of nature connections to to nature and their life everyday life uh, so these values can be different of uh, different form of expression such as a special connection in everyday life um, their identity so how do they identify themselves as as uh, like like forest people or mountain people or these mountain and and it could be a culture or rituals like uh, in, in, in like Buddhism um, connections, no, some the the mountain sacred mountains, for instance. So this kind of uh, uh, values um, attachments to nature, it is always there, no. So so this is this is where where we um, kind of uh, differentiate what we are talking about, and. What does environmentalism mean to to the people in the context of Myanmar? And and we can also look at it from the different perspectives. For example, that we have different environmental problems. Uh, uh, let's differentiate it from the urban and rural perspective. So in the urban area, um, we have it has been there. No, in Myanmar, uh, there can be like mortar pollutions and waste management problems. Uh, there has been studies um, in in 2000, early 2000, 2012. Um, the emissions in Myanmar mostly comes from the transportation sectors, um, and we have huge problem with the waste management um, issues. Uh, but waste management, in a sense that uh, household waste management, no, not the kind of like uh, industrial waste management. So. So it is here and there, uh, this, uh, this kind of urban environmental um, studies and, and, and also like raising awareness, uh, this kind of thing are there. So the majority of the problems in uh, environmental problems in Myanmar, um, I would say that in the rural 
it happens in the rural areas and urban areas because our cities are still not that big in a relative sense. And what's your experience, Marianne, with like uh, climate awareness or environmentalism um, when you have been in, in Myanmar? Yeah, um, so I did interviews in four villages in Karen State and Tanintari in 2018 and 2019. Uh, in addition to a lot of interviews in, in Yangon and Naypyidaw and uh, uh, Pa'an and Dawei. But uh, in the villages, I was actually surprised uh, that uh, everyone I spoke to, except two people, um, said that uh, that uh, they had experienced uh, quite dramatic changes in uh, weather patterns uh, in the climate uh, since they were younger. Um, a lot of people had quite... Uh, quite substantive knowledge about climate change and uh, referred to it as climate change um, and um, said that it was about um, pollution from industrial countries. Um, some people were uh, saying that it was about uh, deforestation um, and blaming it more on local um, deforestation than, than global emissions. But um, anyway, all of them uh, were complaining that uh, the, it was getting hotter and hotter every year. Uh, it's raining when it's not supposed to rain. It's becoming windier um, and um, the monsoon season is shorter. So all of these things make it more difficult, especially for the farmers to to plan their, um, their crops. Um, so they start planting and then suddenly the the rain stops uh, or suddenly it rains too much. And uh, yeah, there's a lot of impacts on, on their agricultural practices, but also their health and old people and, and young uh, children especially are suffering from uh, heat related uh, illnesses and heat stroke uh, much more frequently now than they were before. Um, so I would say definitely people uh, in local uh, villages um, in Myanmar are feeling climate change on their bodies and um, they are very concerned about it and they have a lot of knowledge about it. Um, and if we go kind of higher up to people in authority positions, they also have um, very uh, clear ideas about uh, how climate change is affecting Myanmar and how important it is for for, for Myanmar to, to deal with it and to reduce vulnerabilities. Um, so I think your question about, about, about politicians, um, I think that I found challenging in Myanmar. At the time in 2018, 2019, uh, politics was much more dominated by other struggles. It was more dominated by the struggle um, between NLD and, and ethnic minority parties and, and uh, USDP and other issues and related to democracy, related to federalism and all of these very important big topics. So climate change was and environmental protection wasn't really a political topic in that sense. Um, so there is a um, committee in, uh, uh, there was a committee in parliament that was dealing with climate change issues, but that committee was dealing more frequently with issues related to mining and to natural resources extraction um, and discussing those type of uh, questions because those were much more pressing than, than climate change um, per se um, and environmental protection in itself. Um, so I would say that the biggest uh, um, authority, the most action on climate change was happening in the bureaucracy of the state. It was in the Ministry uh, of Natural Resources and Environmental Conservation, uh, the Environmental Conservation Department specifically that was uh, 
doing um, most things on on climate change from a state perspective. But um, but uh, of course, there were also a lot of non-state actors that were very active uh, before and and still. Um, that uh, climate activists that were trying to put uh, climate change on the agenda and trying to do much more and trying to push the, the government to, to do much more than they were doing. Um, yeah, thank you very much. So we can conclude maybe that awareness is there and people know what's going on and they know what the problem is, but that it is somehow difficult to uh, translate this into political action because the priority list, there are so many other pressing issues before that. So maybe um, if we talk, I would like to talk a little bit more about this time before the coup. Would you say from your experience that there have been measures taken, that there have been initiatives by the government or some things which you say these are have been really good steps forward for better environmental protection or building up climate resilience? So Anna Maria, you can maybe start? There has been, in my experience of my research, um, there has been a lot of uh, grassroots initiatives. Um, for instance, they they it, it's it's actually very um, uh, difficult, you know, because all the when you look at the when you study these environmental conflicts, it is it's, it's just not one one claims, you no, know? and and it, it sometimes uh, you can see some of the. Um, the people who are protesting, um, like a mobilization, like local mobilization against some um, resource, uh, uh, natural resource, ex against like resource extractive um, conflicts, you, they will come up with some sort of climate change um, uh, it, because this can affect intensify the climate change for instance like when you look at the coal fire power plants uh, conflicts there are people who claims like that not just about the health immediate health uh, impact they, they also uh, kind of frame it into the climate change so, so there is this awareness is happening uh, in this uh, local context is very uh, in the rural context it's how it, it it can affect their livelihoods if they do this kind of um, the this how they, they are aware of this development projects or extractive industry how how they can affect in terms of um, climate change. So we have seen some um, initiatives or dialogues that has been. Um, engaged by uh, the indigenous communities and, 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 and grassroots organizations. Mariana, I'm sure you have also some experiences you can share with our listeners. Yes. So uh, in terms of climate change and climate uh, politics, um, before Cyclone Nargis, there was very little uh, happening in Myanmar in terms of uh, climate politics and uh, initiatives. Uh, but after Cyclone Nargis, uh, there was, uh, that was a wake-up call for, for most people about uh, the state of vulnerability that the country was in. Um, and... Uh, and also it triggered a lot of grassroots mobilization because people could see that the state was not really protecting them um, in this case. So uh, that opened up um, a for a lot of activities at gr grassroots levels, but also at the state level. Um, so since then, uh, there have been seven uh, climate change policy documents uh, published by the, the government of Myanmar. 
uh, from 2012 to 2019. Um, and uh, there was, uh, in that period, Myanmar received more than $6 billion in uh, climate-related development aid, according to OECD numbers. So um, there were a lot of international support uh, through UN organizations and INGOs um, and uh, channeled a lot of this money into local organizations, local NGOs, civil society organizations, community-based organizations. Um, and there were a lot of activities happening uh, across the country um, on um, on both uh, adaptation measures, but also mitigation efforts. Um, and a lot of these projects were really good and they were uh, helping people increase um, resilience um, to prepare for extreme weather events, but also to adjust to, to the changes that were happening. Um, but of course, many of these projects were unable to work on many of the real causes of why people are vulnerable um, in Myanmar, because the reasons why people are vulnerable is often not really about um, um, the environment itself and exposure to climate impacts, but it is about socio-political uh, dynamics. Um, and we see that very clearly now after the coup, how uh, the state of vulnerability in Myanmar has uh, again uh, decreased dramatically. Um, so if there was a cyclone happening in Myanmar right now, I think it would be uh, at the scale of Cyclone Argus, um, the, the type of devastation that it could happen, while if it happened maybe in 2019, there it could be a bit less uh, dramatic impact. So, so we see the impact of uh, political changes on states of vulnerability. Um, yeah, so there were a lot of ha uh, positive things happening in, in the decade uh, of, um, of semi-democracy, um, but uh, many of these uh, have collapsed since the political, uh, since the coup. Sometimes there seems to be a tension or a conflict between economic development and environment protection. For economic development, you need energy. For energy, you build a coal power plant and the coal power mm -hmm. plant. So okay. there is this, there can be this conflict. So mm -hmm. in order to raise uh, the living standard of the people, you mm -hmm. can say we need more energy, we need some development. Mm -hmm. But this will lead okay. to environmental degradation. So there are there are solutions to this conflict. But basically, this is uh, I would say a driver behind a lot of these conflicts we are having today. This is like okay. the basic difficulty. And and how is that? Uh, because I know that you have been researching mm -hmm. uh, environment protests. Mm -hmm. And for example, we can make like the Lepadon copper mine, mm -hmm. which uh, and then Aung San Suu Kyi even came to mediate. But she mm -hmm. got a lot of criticism because people said, oh, you're on the side of the big companies. But her point was, if we want to have development, we can. We, we somehow need China, we somehow need investors, and we have to stick to the contracts. Mm -hmm. But the people said, but they are, they are not compensating and they are destroying the environment and we are suffering okay. and so on. So there is this basic okay, this, this conflict. Debate. This debate uh, in, in Myanmar with development and natural resource extractions, uh, I would say that it could go back uh, to the history. You know, uh, the state violence and natural resources management. We could go back to 1800 when the British enforced the law on the Burma Forest Act, and then the people started to rebel because they they can no longer use the the forest. 
And when the, but then the intention of the British government at that time was to systematically uh, kind of manage the, the forests and, and to extract the timbers and to, to increase the revenues. Uh, but then there has always been like this kind of uprising in Myanmar. It's, it's historically, it's there. Uh, so the forest people at that time uh, have this re rebel re re rebellion, no? started the rebellion, uh, burning the forest. Uh, so that was in the 1800. And then when you, uh, it's, it's developed, uh, not developed, uh, when you move on to looking at uh, the oil field uprising in the 1930s, uh, there is this, uh, well, these kind of narratives are overshadowed, short shadowed by the independence or the working class struggles. But, and then the environment was not really like in the focus. So we can also see that the civil disobedience in Myanmar was rooted back in those days. So there was this violence and repression by the police at that time. And if you fast forward to the post-development Myanmar, it became much more violent as the uh, military uses uh, landmines, militarizations in this development project, such as uh, one example can be the Lopita Dam, which is one of the uh, earliest uh, development project um, uh, after independence. No? So it, it, it has affected a lot of people, um, indigenous people in the Kayan state, Karani state. Uh, it's really interesting because it is one of the state that now uh, with the most uh, violent conflicts is happening there. And, and it, but it, it, these, these states are historically um, affected by these uh, resource resource grab and 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 violence uh, state violence um, from this development pro through this development pros, pros, uh, development project and then, and and from the data that we have we have been analyzing in our archives. Um, it's not just about dam. We have coal-fired power plants conflicts, uh, water conflicts, and, and mining conflicts. No, and the Tanwin River is the most conflicted rivers. And we also identify uh, these environmental activists who are being killed, and criminalized, and tortured. And it's not just environmental activists and journalists who are trying to find out about this um, uh, the timber trading, and they they just disappeared or or murdered. No, so <clears throat> and then we have. Um, uh, when we look at this uh, period-wise, we can also see that um, uh, in the 80s, the from the 80s, uh, the, there is not much of uh, this kind of controversial projects because the because generals Nguyen's closed door economy, so there is no like. It's, it's not happen. I'm not saying that it's not happened, but um, this was uh, economy was dormant at that time. And then the controversial projects, the rise of these controversial projects begins in the 90s and peaked in the mid 2000 and rises after the elections in the 2010 and 2011. And the protests and mobilizations are are like we can see through like 2012 onward. Then after NLD Party won, uh, we can identify uh, lots of uh, protests, no? land grabs and and like you have uh, like you said um, a lot of the 
much of these negotiations with the communities are engaged by the state councillor Ron San Suu Kyi, and also um, there are like a, uh, chief ministers of current state, for instance, like the Nankin Tuimin, a lot of uh, like leaders from this NLD and representatives were engaging in in this um, these conflicts, and we we can see that there is also a lot of violence. You cannot really generalize because all the conflict they they have this kind of uh, different dynamics and different framing. So uh, yes, most of the, for instance, Lebanon uh, mining conflicts was very um, intense, and there was uh, some uh, uh, it, it would like uh, criminalize and and murder cases were there uh, because like you have to see like who's behind who who is the investor who who owns the project you no know? uh, so depending on this. It, it become uh, they become different different uh, different discussions okay so thank you very much so maybe um we we have been or we have touched several times of course environmental questions are political questions uh always uh, and there is this direct connection and um as i said like there might be this playing out economic development against environment questions and maybe Mariana, you can also add something and explain a little bit more like where where is the specific pattern or connection between this political environmental questions in Myanmar from your point of view? Yeah, so I think um, questions about environmental protection, uh, including climate change, is often about um, what should we do about an environmental resource? What, how should we manage this uh, forest? How should we manage this mangrove uh, area, this wetlands, this um, area? And uh, who should have authority to make decisions on how to use these resources? In what way? For which, which purpose? Uh, and with the benefits for whom? Um, so the political uh, core kind of, of environmental and climate change issues is uh, who it is that gets to decide on how do we uh, respond to environmental problems, how do we solve them, and how are they created. Um, so I think, <clears throat> especially in terms of uh, climate change in Myanmar, the the intersection between politics and uh, climate action is uh, very concerned with some controversial topics related to hydropower, uh, forest protection, and biofuel production. And um, they become political because they uh, uh, limit people's access to resources and livelihoods that they depend on. And who the question is then who it is that gets their uh, access restricted, and usually in these cases it is the um, uh, the local populations, the marginalized peoples, uh, ethnic minority groups that get uh, that lose their access to uh, the resources and the and the um, uh, land areas that they need uh, for their livelihoods, um, and so traditionally a lot of um, these uh, measures that are promoted to reduce emissions of uh, greenhouse gases for mitigating uh, climate change um, relates to en renewable energy um, like hydropower that has uh, historically led to displacements and um, 
a lot of environmental uh, impacts and social impacts in Myanmar. So they become very conflictual topics um, when they're promoted as um, as climate change mitigation uh, options. So yeah, so I would say it's all about the authority and environmental governance that uh, is uh, at the core of uh, the politics of um, of climate change and environment in Myanmar and elsewhere. Okay, yeah, but... but I want to one one thing I want to add is that um, one of these these conflicts these tensions are um, of course it, it is also this kind of discussion of how these um, the resources should be used or utilized of course there is also it is uh, this there is this discussion but there is also this tension uh, political tensions where um, who who like how these uh, these um, like for instance. Um, how these projects got permissions, for instance, and sometimes they uh, they they don't really have this uh, like clear environmental impact. They don't really have this. Um, uh, they didn't engage with the local peoples, and it it move on, and that is why a lot of uh, these controversial projects. Um, the, when you look at the year of the, uh, the the projects that got that they got established, uh, it, it's prior to 2012. It was from 2008, 2009 when this. Um, the transitional period, and it was very controversial. Who decided these? Um, who give permissions? No, and the, there is no public public engagements. There is a lot of um, um, land grabbings, and and those are the the the, the I think it's the, those are the problems why um, these um, uh, tensions arises. Okay, so uh, maybe. If it is right to say, like those conflicts evolve around like two questions, like who decides and who benefits. Uh, maybe that is a correct way to describe it. And we can say, like, um, before the coup, um, there was not maybe always or at all pace, but there was a functioning state and a government. There were, of course, different actors like the ethnic minority groups and so on and so forth. But there was, uh, and there were. There was a vibrant or growing uh, civil society and NGOs and so on and so forth. So there was like, a, and they were discussing about this, uh, who decides and who benefits or this discussion started. But I would like to know, like, from your perspective, what did the coup mean to this discussion, which only started? And what do you think, like, what is the impact of the, of the recent coup d'etat on this important uh, dialogue, which needs to be, yeah, which needs to happen? Maybe Marianne, you can start, and then uh, Anna Marie, you can add. Sure. Um, so I think I would add one more question to your that it's around yeah who um, decides, who benefits, but also who suffers, because uh, that's the flip side of who benefits. That there's usually a winner and a loser, um, and that's uh, often very yeah controversial and political of who it is that ends up losing and, and who benefits. Um, so I, yeah, I think the the problem now is that these very important discussions um, are not taking place. It's not possible um, to to criticize and to oppose the development uh, project kind of of the state. Um, so now, when for example the um, Hachi Dam in on the, the Selwyn River has been approved again. Um, by um, Minang Lang and his um, his military junta, uh, it's not so easy now uh, for local populations to 
contest it and protest against it because they are risking their lives um, if they speak up against the, um, the state administration council, um, the military junta. Um, so while it was a little bit difficult also before, it's now certainly um, it's uh, risking their lives basically to to protest against these type of uh, state developments. Um, and same with oil palm plantations in Tanintari uh, after uh, Minerlang announced that he wanted self-sufficiency again in uh, uh, edible oils. He um, um, put uh, oil palm plantations back on the table as uh, as the prime um, uh, development um, priority in uh, Tanintari, and uh, and of course that's not something that local people can contest. Um, so yeah, it, it's. It's a very sad development because um, it's going to benefit uh, or to the people that are going to suffer uh, is the marginalized uh, peoples, especially ethnic minority groups in these areas. Um, and those who benefit, uh, especially for the hydropower, the Hachi Dam, 90% of the electricity that it will produce will be sent to Thailand. Yes, uh, I agree with uh, Mali and like uh, we are losing this space for um, social activism. Um, uh, in both in terms of uh, uh, in terms of uh, protection of and like discussion on on environment or also as well as uh, for the climate change um, and it mostly most of these these projects also um, heavily related to to the the military. Um, the revenue of the military, for instance, uh, when we look at these uh, conflicted, uh, the most conflicted, um, the most contested um, projects uh, in Myanmar, uh, a, lot, a lot were owned by uh, the um, the UMH, uh, UMEHL or MECs, um, which are these military um, Owned businesses and the state-owned businesses, and and also like and then like you can also see that there are like local, uh, local businesses, and but then when you look at each of the name of the local businesses, it is very um, uh, very controversial. Like some of them are cronies, some of them are under uh, under these military businesses. Uh, so uh, I think there will be like. Uh, after this this process, no, um, that losing one one is that losing the social activism, like speaking out for injustices, and another one is that there could be like more cases can be there because military will need more revenue uh, to continue their uh, operations uh, against these uh, minorities, ethnic minorities, and to to have their their power. Uh, so um, yeah, it is. Um, uh, yeah, we can we can uh, like anticipate uh, more sort of um, environmental ex exploitations. Yeah, this is now a bleak or dire outlook, but I would like to try at least to have maybe a more constructive tone at the at the end or towards the end of our podcast. Of course, like given the fact that the majority of international development partners is not engaging uh, the SAC or they are trying to avoid it. So what do you think is left or who should international donors, uh, organizations, should, or should they, who, with whom should they work? How could they engage and what can be done? I, I can 
speak from the the grassroots uh, perspectives no so uh, what what is missing there the whole time is that um, this the lack of engagement with the the kind of global environmental agencies you no know, there have there are like when you look at it in latin america uh in in there are many uh environmental um grassroots uh, networks that are available and that that there has been a lack of in, in like integration of these uh Myanmar locals environmental movement into larger networks of um, these uh, activist network. Uh, maybe what we can anticipate is that we can try to find this kind of um, like common commonalities um, of these issues and and try to create a larger network and to be engaged in this environmental and protection and climate vulnerability dialogues we can like in try to increase this kind of dialogues through like networking with similar um uh, like grassroots networks that is one thing that i see what we can do and what do you think about like um the ethnic groups and the ethnic organization have always been very important for the regions they control uh would you say that this is a, a good approach like to work together with them uh regarding uh environment protection and and the um yeah mitigation adaptation uh, all these questions related to climate crisis uh yes i i would say that it is uh, like for instance we you can see the kisan for instance um karen uh, network of um, for and they, they have been doing it it's the, historically they've been doing a lot of uh, environmental protections and and have actually they they are the one who is doing a lot of networks uh, when i see uh, a lot of environmental activists and i say oh i know I know these organizations, and then I think that is why they have uh, reached this far. Um, and I think it, it is not that something that that from now on it has already been there. Um, there is already an engagement there. Um, but I think what I'm saying is that um, there are also other local organizations, local networks that are in, let's say, in Arakan or in, 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 in like, uh, Burmese uh, regions, and they can also um, have this kind of increase the network and dialogues uh, with other international <clears throat> organizations. And, uh, and Mariana, what, what's your take on this? What can be done? Yeah, sure. Um, so I agree with exactly with what uh, Anna Maria said um, that um, in uh, especially in southeastern Myanmar, which I'm most familiar with, uh, there's a lot of civil society organizations that have been working uh, very successfully on environment and climate change issues for um, yeah for 20 years almost. Um, and a lot of them were a bit disappointed actually in the period uh, of the NLD period, uh, because a lot of the international organizations were re-channeling their funds uh, from the border-based uh, civil society organizations um, 
and to the central union government of Myanmar. Um, so they were getting less support from the international community at that time, while the while the state bureaucracy of the union government was <clears throat> getting a lot of funds and capacity building and uh, and empowerment. Um, so I think definitely rechanneling. Um, money and capacity building to these civil society based organizations uh, is uh, very important. Um, I think they are the the key in many ways to to build a better future. Um, and I know that a lot of them are still trying to to operate um, as much as they can within the space that they have. Uh, and a lot of them have networks where some of the um, group members are in Chiang Mai or in Mesot or in other places in Thailand and then some uh, group members are inside uh, the country um, and they work uh, as good as they can um, within the limits that they have. So yeah, so I think definitely they should be given a lot of more support. I also know that uh, a lot of the former staff in uh, Environmental Conservation Department uh, who were working on climate change issues before uh, left uh, with the CDM movement. Uh, they are on strike and have continued their work under the NUD government. Um, so uh, interestingly, for example, last year, um, there were two reports published from uh, Myanmar to the Paris Agreement. The national determined contributions from Myanmar were submitted in two cases. One, uh, one document was sent from the State Administration Council um, and one was sent from the NUG, the National Unity Government, and they were basically identical documents. So it was clear that uh, the staff that had been working on on these documents in ECD have um, they some staff stayed, some staff left. Um, so supporting those that left, uh, I think, it could be important, and uh, recognizing uh, yeah the important work that the NUG is doing, trying to do. Okay, yeah, thank you very much um, for uh, being on Myanmar in a potshell and for sharing your insights and your research. Um, I think maybe we can wrap up that uh, awareness is not the problem, like the people know and the people understand what's at stake. Um, and that the three questions, which I think wrap it up really good, is like who decides, who benefits, who suffers. And unfortunately, under the SAC and the uh, ongoing struggle, there is more suffering than benefiting for anybody. Um, but it is like the best way to do the little we can is like to use those spaces and to work with the organizations who have been there and have been there for a long time. Um, yeah, thank you once again. And uh, to our listeners, uh, please tune in again next time to Myanmar in a pot shell. Thank you very much. Thank you.